Our scripture reading today comes from Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the, righteousness, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saved the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their lives and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Tom, and uh, welcome to each one of you here. You all look so good, and those of uh, you who are joining us online, a special warm welcome to you. Over Thanksgiving break, I was, uh, well, it was part of my honeydew list. I was doing some cleaning in the basement of our house, and I came across a box that sort of came back to me with memories of our children when they were young. It was a box filled with Christmas books that we read. And one of them was this one right here, uh, the best Christmas pageant ever. You all know that one? It's an amazing story. The central characters are the Herdman family. Uh, these kids are wild, they're unruly, they're unkept, they're socially uncouth. And if you love the story, they're a downright mean bunch. Now, the Herdman name became household names uh, when my kids are growing up. And to be called a Herdman, let me just say, was not a compliment in the Nelson household. Arthur, our, our author Barbara Robinson paints this unvarnished portrait of the Herdman. She writes, listen, the Herdmans were absolutely the worst kids in the history of the world. They lied, they stole, they smoked cigars, even the girls, and talked dirty and hit little kids and cussed their teachers and took the name of the Lord in vain and set fire 
to Fred Shoemaker's old broken down tool house. You get the idea of the Herdmans, right? The Herdman kids, well, they lacked virtue training. They had spent no time in a church. They don't know anything about a Christmas story. And yet they bully their way into the cast of the local church's Christmas pageant. They become the main characters. And if you haven't read it, uh, maybe that's your assignment for Advent. Can I just say that? It's awesome. Well, let's just say, uh, without me giving too much of the story away, the Herdmans, uh, well, they present new perspectives about the story, and they bring this intense energy to the Christmas pageant. Let me just give you a sample, okay? First of all, <laughs> they are going to beat up the innkeeper uh, for not making room for Mary and Joseph, right? They're going to punch his lights out. That's the idea. Uh, they're also incensed by the wise men's lame gifts, is what they call it, brought to baby Jesus. Quote, what kind of a cheap king hands out oil for a present? Imogene Herdman is, I mean, at the top of her game. She plays Mary, uh, again, if you know the story. She can't believe, she's incredulous, that baby Jesus is wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a man manger. And she blurts out, you mean they tied him up? And put him in a feed box? Where was child welfare, social services, right? <laughs> but what I love most about this story, y'all, is the Herdman kids, well, they're the neediest, scruffiest, most messy people imaginable. But as the story unfolds, they are caught up in the jaw-dropping wonder of this king who has come into the world, a king who has come for them. Not the all-together people, but the not-together people. To the socially awkward, to the poor, to the disadvantaged, to the marginalized, to the unwelcome, to the weak. To the very vulnerable, to the really messy, messy people. To the most needy. The king, unlike other kings of the world, does not ignore them, does not dismiss them, does not manipulate them, does not use them, does not reject them. The king is truly for them. Now, even though I trust most of us have just a little bit more social grace than the Herdmans, or maybe we uh, seemingly have more of life together, let's just be very transparent. Barbara's story is insightful because it helps us to see there's just a whole lot of Herdman in each one of us. Not just when we are strong or good, right? But when we are weak and anything but good. Not just when we know where we're going, but when we have lost our way. Not just when we are on top of life, but when life is on top of us. Not just when we have friends who are always there for us, but when we have friends who, poof, who vanish in front of us. All of us need a king who's truly for us, who will not walk out of the room on us, even when we ignore him, doubt him, blame him, or even turn our backs on him. The good news in our text this morning is that we have a king like this. A king who's truly for us. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Old Testament, the remarkable book of Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 72. Today we are continuing our Advent series across our campuses called The Promised King. And as we enter Psalm 72, I want to take a few moments, if you will indulge me, to set the literary context. Now, if you're here at the Leeward campus last week, Pastor Brent 
began this introduction to Hebrew poetry, and Psalm 72 is a poetic prayer. As ancient Hebrew poetry, let me just say a couple things. It does not follow a linear progression or developing story plot like other kinds of genre. Rather, it beautifully and brilliantly and artistically arranges and often repeats many facets of various themes and allows us to slow down, to linger in its marinating images and to imaginatively explore its multifaceted dimensions and multiple layers of meaning. Let's also remember that the Psalms are a gathered collection of 150 inspired texts. They are arranged in five books. Each book ends in a brilliant and beautiful crescendo of praise to the God of Israel. The Psalms were the prayer book of God's covenant people. They were the prayer book that Jesus grew up with. What he heard in his home and in the synagogue in Nazareth. And as we will see here in Psalm 72, ready for this? These Psalms were ultimately written about and for Jesus. The very first verse of the Psalm, if you look of Psalm 72 addresses the king. This tells us right up front that this is a literary genre we call in Hebrew poetry a royal psalm. What follows then is a prayer or petition made for the blessing of the king and the prosperity of his rule and reign. Psalm 72 also, you will notice, and we'll touch on this in a moment, has a prophetic thread. It anticipates the messianic king, the anointed one, promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, a king that will be forever and would have eternal throne. So as you read Psalms, particularly Psalm 72, you hear the canonical echoing of the covenant to David in 2 Samuel 7. So I want you to keep your ears attuned to that, okay? Now, you'll also notice in most of your Bibles, before verse 1, you have what's called a subscript. It may say something like, of Solomon. Now, whether this psalm was written by Solomon or for Solomon, right, we cannot be absolutely sure. And not to be too technical, but the reason is because this little English word for is translated from one Hebrew preposition that can mean for, by, with. Okay, so I just want you to know that. It is very possible also in this case that David wrote this psalm before his death anticipating his son's reign, his son Solomon, okay? Because David is mentioned unusually at the very end of the psalm. We just don't know for sure. What we do know is we can see here, and I want you to see, how beautifully woven into the covenantal fabric of Psalm 72 is the messianic dynasty of David, the great king, the king who is truly for us. So as we explore this psalm, this prayer, I want us to look at three reassuring truths that emerge about a king that's truly for us. These are the three that sort of to arrange the thoughts of your mind as we move through this psalm. We have a king, number one, who knows our vulnerability. Secondly, sees us as precious. And third, is with us now and forever. First, first reassuring truth. We have a king who knows our vulnerability. 
Now you'll notice juxtaposed against the greatness, goodness, prosperity, and invulnerability of this great king is the compelling reality of our human vulnerability. It jumps out at us almost in every verse. Look at verses 1 through 4. This is where it begins. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. May he give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Now, as the king's righteousness and prosperous reign is petitioned, you'll notice there is a comforting and reassuring hopefulness that this king is not blind. This king is not indifferent or incapable of caring for the most vulnerable. You'll hear constantly there is this repetition of poor and needy. The poetic thread of a king who knows our human vulnerability and cares for us, you and me, in our vulnerability, appears with a literary style of a staccato kind of repetition. Notice verses 12 to 13, it appears again. Listen to these words. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor, and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the life of the needy. Do you listen to the intensity of this repetition? You go, oh, yes, I get it. The poetic psalmist does not want us to miss this theme. He is saying the king, this great king, is attentive to the most vulnerable. They are completely safe and tenderly cared for in his kingdom reign. This king is our king. He is truly for us. Now, this poetic truth is woven into canonical scripture through a narrative story that perfectly captures this in Torah, the first five books of the Bible. In Genesis 16, for example, we have a wonderful story that captures this. Abraham's wife, Sarah, is barren, and she has a foreign servant, Hagar. Hagar in Hebrew means Hagar, the foreigner. Now, keep that in mind, the foreigner, okay? And uh, through a series of events, they don't trust God, uh, Abraham and uh, Hagar have a relationship. Hagar bears a son while Sarah is barren at this point. Sarah, the princess, <laughs> is what her name means. She is anything but a princess. Uh, she treats her servant, Hagar, with contempt and hate. She forces her to flee, and Hagar runs to this barren reality, this barren wilderness. The point is, in the narrative of Genesis, Sarah wants Hagar out of her sight. But what we discover is the delicious irony that Hagar is never out of God's sight. Hagar's great need, her desperately broken heart, her desperate vulnerability have not been lost by God. It is God who goes to find her and to be with her, the most desperate and most vulnerable of society. And if you want to read the story later, we read that the angel of the Lord and many scholars uh, 
believe that this phraseology suggests a pre-incarnate visit of Jesus the Messiah. So just keep that in mind, most likely. The angel of the Lord reveals himself to Hagar, promising her his presence, his provision, and blessing. Hagar declares God's name. And it's translated in English, the God who sees. Or you could say, the God who sees me. Is that awesome? And then she says something we often miss in Genesis 16, but it's really the crux of the matter. She says, truly I have seen him who looks after me. The one true God of Hagar and the great king of Psalm 2. Or, uh, Psalm 72 here, are not only aware of the vulnerable, but the care of the vulnerable. So you hear, if you are an attuned listener, canonically, biblically, here you have the prayerful poet echoing the thoughts of Hagar, of the angel of the Lord. This is the king here who sees, the king who looks after us, who is truly for us. Here we encounter a surprising truth. It is in our weakness and vulnerability where our attentive God powerfully shows up. In fact, Rabbi Paul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, recognizes this of his great king who appears to him on the road to Damascus. Jesus, his power and presence, when he says to the Corinthians, when I am weak, then I am strong. It is in our vulnerability where we know and are truly known best. It is where intimacy deepens. It, there's a rumor at Christ's community that I have a man crush on Dr. Kurt Thompson, uh, our Christian psychiatrist friend who's been here and loves Christ's community, and we love him. His uh, book, The Soul of Shame, Kurt knocks it out of the park here. He makes this connection. Listen to Kurt. Vulnerability is the state we must pass through in order to deepen our connection with God and others. Given our condition, there is no other way. Hmm. Because we have a king who knows our vulnerability, who sees us in our vulnerability... Our vulnerability is never a barrier to our flourishing. In fact, it is a faith pathway to it. Sometimes, you know, we fear our vulnerability, right? Sometimes we try to avoid it, try to smooth it over. But rather, this is to lead us to someone we lovingly embrace. The great king never tires of reaching for us. The biblical writers have strong, good biblical anthropology, and they are saying to be human is to be vulnerable. We are born vulnerable, right? Babies completely dependent on others, and if we live long enough, we will once again be dependent on others to care for us. In this Advent season, you may be feeling a heightened sense of vulnerability, and with it, fear, anxiety, and gnawing loneliness. This is a vital part of the human condition. You may be feeling vulnerable around your physical or mental health or someone you love deeply as they face that reality. You might be feeling a heightened sense of vulnerability 
in the economic world, micro and macro, we're in right now. High inflation is reducing your purchasing power, like overnight. Straining your budget. Investment portfolios have taken a big hit. And retirement savings as well. In your business or workplace, new competition maybe is emerging in your industry and new technology. That's diminishing your market share, altering your sales, affecting your top or bottom line. That's very real in our economic world today. You may be experiencing vulnerability in a cherished relationship where now you are deeply hurt. One that has been drifting and drifting apart. One that is fading and fading what Psalm 72 reminds us is that our vulnerability is God's opportunity, actually. And in our vulnerability, our great king longs to draw near to us, to care for us, to reassure us in his strong, omnipotent arms. We are unimaginably cared for and completely safe. One of my favorite songs was written by Carol Sager and David Foster. And David Foster, when he talks about it, describes a moment in his life. The song is entitled The Prayer. You probably know it. It echoes much of the deep, heartfelt longing of Psalm 72 in your life and mine. The long to be totally safe. The song was famously sung by Celine Dion and Andrea Bocelli in a breathtaking, beautiful rendition that struck a resonant chord with an entire worldwide audience. Let me share just a few of the lyrics that I so deeply love. I pray you'll be our eyes and watch us where we go and help us to be wise in times we don't know. Let this be our prayer. When we lose our way, lead us to a place. Guide us with your grace to a place where we'll be safe. Because of our great king and his kingdom, the good news of this psalm and Advent season is we are truly safe. This is the Apostle Paul's great acclamation in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Messiah, our Lord. So let me ask you, are you feeling a deep and disconcerting sense of being vulnerable this morning? Reflect with me for a moment. How are you responding to your vulnerability with fear and anxiety, with busyness and distractions? Where are you looking for safety and security in a very uncertain, frightening, and fragile world? Are you doing it with your family and friends and your bank account, your net worth, a political party or government official, or a movement of some kind? And will you today Look with me, with fresh eyes, to the king of Psalm 72. Will you open yourself up to his loving embrace, the king in whose righteous reign each one of us can be truly safe? The psalmist reminds us with poetic inspiration and brilliance, we have a king who knows our vulnerability. But notice what is also said in this psalm that is extremely rare. We have a king who sees us as unimaginably precious. Look at me at verse 13. 
From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. The king not only rescues us from injustice and harm, this king redeems our pain, and he sees us as precious. He sees you as precious. This Hebrew phrase can be translated in a more woody, literal way as precious in his eyes. I like that translation better, actually. Think about that with me for a moment, okay? Still with me? There is this incredible longing in your heart and mind. Think of a child making contact with a doting parent. Think of a spouse looking with adoration at their mate. There are a few things your heart and my heart desires more in this life than to be deemed precious in the eyes of someone else we love and respect. This Hebrew word here is used a few places in the Hebrew text, and it always captures something or someone of the highest value. It's described as God's thoughts himself or as wisdom, but mostly it's tied to the most precious material reality of gems, gold, and rubies. To be precious is to be the object of the greatest treasuring imaginable in the universe. I'm a J.R. Token fan. I hope you are as well. And every time I hear the word precious, you probably do. You think of a character in Lord of the Rings. You're all with me. Gollum, right? An unforgettable character in many ways, right? But if you're a Token fan, you know that Gollum obtains the ring by murder, right? This prized ring he's obsessed with. It's the one thing he treasures, and through the writings of Tolkien, which I think Tolkien has some thoughts here from the text, you hear the word, my precious, my precious, my precious, right? Here in Psalm 72, the king, the great king's character is nothing like that. But what is like that is what he values most. Let that grab your heart for a moment this morning. Not just your head, your heart. This great king of Psalm 72 lights up. Not just when he sees the vastness of his universe and all that I can't even begin to conceive. He lights up when he sees you. He delights in you and he says, my precious, you are my precious. You are precious in his eyes. In a very difficult time of pain and great national uncertainty, does that sound like our day? The prophet Jeremiah puts it this way. You are loved with an everlasting love. Who else can ever say that to you? You are unimaginably precious to God. You are his beloved. In his Advent writings, Henry Nouwen really captures this beautifully of our preciousness. He writes with such brilliance, you're an amazing person. Jesus' whole message is to say that you are God's beloved child. When you can hear in your heart, not in your head, that you're truly God's beloved daughter, that you're truly God's beloved son, everything turns around. The mystery of the spiritual truth is that you are loved before you were born. And you will be loved after you die. Your dwelling in God's heart is a dwelling from eternity to eternity. 
do you realize how precious you are to this great king? You are God's beloved. You are the love and treasure of his heart. So will you this Advent delight in the one who delights over you? I believe one of the evil one's greatest weapons, and he's got a lot of them, is to shame us, to get us to forget or be unwilling to believe that we are treasured and unimaginably precious to God. So how might you remind yourself this Advent season just how precious you are to God as his sparkling crown of creation, his image bearer? Perhaps, I hope this doesn't sound silly. I need silly things in my life. Perhaps on your morning mirror that you get to look at yourself for the first time a day. You put a little sticky note with something like, good morning, precious. Good morning, precious. Or what about memorizing and reviewing each day of Advent, Jeremiah 31.3? I have loved you with an everlasting love. Language here is fascinating in Hebrew of an affectionate love of tenderness. We have a king who's truly for us. He knows our vulnerabilities. He sees us as precious. And lastly, he is a king who is with us now and forever. Look at verses 17 through 19. May his name forever, or endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things, Blessed be his glorious name forever. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And we could say amen and amen. Here in this poetic crescendo, the psalmist reaches the highest heights of joy-filled, rapturous praise. And with the names of Solomon and David, they are connected to this psalm explicitly, implicitly hovering over the text, woven into every beautiful word, is Luke eleven thirty-one. You can hear it across the canonical horizon. When Jesus said, indeed, someone greater than Solomon is here. There is an eternal king this psalm is pointing us to. A king is truly for us. A king who became one of us. A king who is with us now and forever. The prayerful praise of the great Davidic king is an expression of hope in the glorious and just eternal rule of Jesus over the earth in the new heavens and new earth. The New Testament writer, Matthew, records the birth of Jesus and sees it as a prophetic fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah in 714. Isaiah says this, a virgin will conceive and hear a son, or bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And if you know, again, the Hebrew context of Emmanuel, it literally means God with us or God with you or God with me. Michael Card, the wonderful singer and songwriter, captures this so beautifully, what is woven into the texture of Psalm 72. And he captures this. He says, a sign shall be given, a virgin will conceive, a human baby bearing undiminished deity. The glory of the nations is a light for all to see that hope for all who will embrace his warm reality. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, our God is with us. And if our God is with us, who can stand against us? Our God is with us, Emmanuel, Emmanuel. Can you imagine... If you put on your sandals and walk back in time, the vulnerability of a young, unwed, pregnant teenage girl by the name of Mary, chosen and called to be the bearer of God's son in her womb. Yet the gospel writer Luke captures Mary's praise called the Magnificat, to God, a God who sees, a God of the vulnerable and lowly. 
And Mary cries out with joyful confidence, echoing Hagar, the God who sees. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. Wow. You and I have a great king who is with each of us now in our most vulnerable moments, in those times of unnerving doubts, in your sleepless nights, in your deep loneliness, in your greatest times of need. You have a God who is with you right now. His name is Emmanuel. God with you. Wrapping up her book, The Best Christmas Pageant Ever, Barbara Robinson writes these words. Well, it was the best Christmas pageant we ever had. Everybody said so. But nobody seemed to know why. And this was the funny thing about it all. For years I thought about the wonder of Christmas and the mystery of Jesus' birth and never really understood it. But now because of the Hurtmans, it didn't seem so mysterious after all. Friends, in this Advent season, may we remember with hopeful hearts that God is not only for us, he became one of us. In a lowly Bethlehem manger, a very vulnerable baby who left the very throne room of heaven, the one who'd set the innumerable stars in motion, came to this tiny sin-scarred planet, and with stunning good news, we encounter Advent. No matter our present circumstances, whether they are bright or bleak in your life, his name is Emmanuel. God is with us. God is with you. God is with you now. So my prayer is that Emmanuel's irresistible love, his unmistakable tenderness and his hope-filled presence, the God is truly for you, who is always with you, will be especially evident to you this Christmas. Will you draw near to him? I can assure you, based on Holy Scripture, he is drawing near to you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you with all our hearts that you are Emmanuel, that you have come for us, that you are with us, and that you hold us safely in your hand as your apprentices. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us.